Welcome to the March 17, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the efficacy of Sirolimus plus prednisolone in caposiform hemangioendothelioma with the Kazabach merit phenomenon. Learn more about the association between SOD2V16A and vascular dysfunction in patients with sickle cell disease. And discuss the value of geriatric assessment in predicting outcomes in older patients with AML. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Sirolimus plus prednisolone versus sirolimus monotherapy for caposiform hemangioendothelioma, a randomized clinical trial by Yi Ji from the West China Hospital of Sichuan University in Sichuan, China, and colleagues. Caposiform hemangioendothelioma is a benign but aggressive vascular neoplasm that typically presents in infancy or early childhood. Approximately 70% of patients with caposiform hemangioendothelioma have life-threatening thrombocytopenia and consumptive coagulopathy, known as the kazabach merit phenomenon, or KMP. Currently, there are no FDA-approved therapies for this tumor. Treatment with corticosteroids and or vincristine has been recommended based on consensus recommendations. However, many patients fail to improve on these drugs. Of note, several recent studies have reported exceptional effectiveness of the immunosuppressant serolimus and a significant reduction in mortality. However, disease control with serolimus alone could not be achieved in all patients. The authors of the current study have previously shown that treatment with serolimus plus prednisolone yields rapid responses in patients with KMP, even in those previously deemed resistant to conventional approaches. Here, they report on the results from a multicenter randomized clinical trial to assess the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of serolimus plus prednisolone versus serolimus monotherapy in caposiform hemangioendothelioma patients with KMP. The study enrolled 73 patients and randomized them one-to-one to serolimus plus prednisolone or serolimus monotherapy. Prednisolone was administered at a dose of 2 mg per kilogram once daily, while the starting dose of serolimus was 0.8 mg per meter squared administered orally twice daily and subsequently titrated to achieve trough levels of 10 to 15 nanograms per milliliter. Both drugs were tapered and discontinued after complete or nearly complete resolution of KHE or if no further improvement of tumor lesions and symptoms was observed after 12 months. The primary endpoint was the difference between the two treatment arms in the proportion of patients who had a durable platelet response at week 4, defined as platelet count greater than or equal to 100 times 10 to the 9th per liter, lasting at least four consecutive weeks. Secondary outcomes included mean changes in platelet counts during weeks 0 to 4, Durable platelet responses assessed during weeks 1 to 3. The proportion of patients with fibrinogen stabilization at week 4. KMP rebound rate. Lesion responses. Quality of life assessment. The incidence of disease sequelae. And safety and tolerability. 
approximately 33% of enrolled patients had received at least one prior line of therapy for their underlying disease, with corticosteroids as the most common previous therapy. Baseline demographics and disease activity were similar between the two groups, with a mean age of KMP onset of 2.1 months and mean KMP duration of 2.1 months. A total of 66 patients completed the 12-month treatment period. Only 2.7% of patients in the combination arm discontinued treatment due to a lack of efficacy, compared to 13.9% of patients in the serolimus monotherapy arm. 81% of patients, or 59 of 73, achieved the target platelet count of 100 times 10 to the 9th per liter or more at week 4. Interestingly, a significantly higher rate of durable platelet response was observed in patients receiving combination therapy, namely 94.6%, compared to patients receiving serolimus alone, whose response rate was 66.7%, giving a difference between the two treatment arms of almost 30%. The overall KMP rebound rate was 11%, and it was lower in the combination treatment arm than the serolimus monotherapy arm, 5.4% versus 16.7%. Patients receiving combination treatment also showed greater improvements in durable platelet responses in the initial three-week period, median platelet counts during weeks one to four, and objective lesion responses. Furthermore, patients receiving combination treatment required fewer blood transfusions and had a lower incidence of disease sequelae compared to patients receiving serolimus alone. Importantly, the frequencies of total adverse events and grade 3 to 4 adverse events were similar in both treatment arms. Taken together, this study demonstrates that serolimus plus prednisolone combination therapy has promising efficacy and an acceptable safety profile in patients with caposiform hemangioendothelioma with KMP. In an accompanying commentary, Alexandra J. Bortz from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Taizo A. Nakano from the Children's Hospital Colorado, note that the authors successfully demonstrated greater effectiveness of upfront dual therapy with serolimus plus prednisolone in resolution of life-threatening KMP in children compared to serolimus monotherapy. They further note that this work may help us better understand the unique relationship between inflammation and caposiform hemangioendothelioma tumor pathophysiology ultimately assisting with the selection of optimal therapies. Bortz and Nakano emphasize that prospective treatment and risk stratification studies, such as the one performed by Xi and collaborators, are needed to improve the understanding of this rare tumor and patient outcomes. Lessons learned from these studies would not only aid in the management of caposiform hemangioendothelioma, but also in the identification of complex mechanisms regulating angiogenesis, lymphangiogenesis, and disrupted coagulation and inflammation at the endothelial cell level, which is relevant in many other disease processes. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled SOD2V16A amplifies vascular dysfunction in sickle cell patients by curtailing mitochondria complex 4 activity by Atenuke Dosunmu Ogunbi 
from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and colleagues. Cardiovascular manifestations in patients with sickle cell disease, or SCD, remain highly variable, with approximately 6% to 11% of adult patients developing pulmonary hypertension and 24% of patients exhibiting signs of stroke by age 45. It has been established that genetic variability and oxidative stress are the key elements driving phenotype variability in SCD. Prior studies have also shown that mitochondrial dysfunction contributes to the pathogenesis of SCD by increasing the production of reactive oxygen species. Superoxide dismutase 2, or SOD2, is a mitochondrial matrix protein that catalyzes dismutation of the superoxide anion radical to hydrogen peroxide and plays an important role in cellular oxidative stress homeostasis. A well-known polymorphism, termed RS4880 in this gene, creates a valine to alanine substitution in the mitochondrial leader sequence of SOD2, also known as SOD2V16A. This variant is found in more than 50% of people with European, South Asian, or Latino origin, and about 45% of people with African ancestry. In people with sickle cell disease, the SOD2V16A variant is associated with acute splenic sequestration and vasoocclusive crises in children and increased risk of stroke in adults. However, the impact of SOD2V16A on the severity of cardiovascular manifestations in SCD remains poorly understood, as are the effects of this variant on mitochondrial function. In the current study, investigators aimed to test the hypothesis that SOD2V16A drives mitochondrial dysfunction and increases ROS production in SCD, and that it can be used as a biomarker for the risk of developing vasculopathy. The study genotyped 410 patients with SCD from the treatment of pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease with sildenafil therapy trial to assess the presence of this SOD2 polymorphism. The authors then analyzed the association between SOD2V16A and various markers of cardiovascular distress in the studied group of patients. In addition, to determine the impact of SOD2V16A in the endothelium, the authors introduced the SOD2V16A variant into cultured endothelial cells using lentiviral transduction and transfection experiments. A total of 217 out of 410 patients were heterozygous, and 64 were homozygous for the SOD2V16A variant. Linear regression analysis revealed that patients homozygous for SOD2V16A displayed increased tricuspid regurgitant velocity, systolic blood pressure, systolic right ventricular area and hemolytic index, decreased 6-minute walk distance, and a strong trend toward decreased hemoglobin concentration. These findings suggest reduced pulmonary and cardiovascular functions, worse anemia and hemolysis, and an increase in endothelial dysfunction in patients who have two copies of the SOD2V16A variant. The study further found a significant association between plasma lactate dehydrogenase, a marker of oxidative stress and hemolysis, and higher tricuspid regurgitant velocity.
Experiments in endothelial cells revealed that SOD2V16A increases hydrogen peroxide and the production of ROS compared to wild-type SOD2. Interestingly, the increased ROS production was not attributed to SOD2V16A mislocalization. Rather, it was associated with a decrease in basal respiration and mitochondrial complex 4 activity. Taken together, these findings indicate that SOD2V16A is a novel clinical biomarker of cardiovascular dysfunction in SCD patients that exerts its effects by decreasing mitochondrial complex 4 activity and increasing ROS production in the endothelium. In an accompanying commentary, Laurent Messonnier from Savoy Montblanc University in Chambéry, France, notes that the study by Dosunmu Ogunbi and colleagues highlights the importance of SOD2V16A in the cardiovascular dysfunction of SCD patients. Until now, the role of mitochondria has been largely ignored or underestimated in SCD, even though mitochondrial respiration produces a significant amount of ROS. Messonnier further notes that these latest findings raise important questions about the potential benefits of antioxidant supplementation and exercise training in patients with SCD, which should be addressed by future studies. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Geriatric Assessment Predicts Non-Fatal Toxicities and Survival for Intensively Treated Older Adults with AML by Ji Jun Min from Seoul St. Mary's Hospital in Seoul, Korea, and colleagues. AML is associated with worse survival in adults over the age of 60, particularly when the patient also has unfavorable cytogenetics, poor performance status, or acquired comorbidities. However, studies to date have also shown that some older adults with AML can benefit from intensive chemotherapy, including cytarabine and anthracycline, despite a higher risk of toxicity associated with these agents. However, the lack of validated prognostic models continues to hinder the identification of patients who may benefit from more intensive treatment. Patient fitness for intensive treatment is usually assessed based on chronological age, performance status, and comorbidities. But the prognostic value of these parameters has proven to be limited in studies to date. However, broader geriatric assessment tools that also assess functional ability, nutritional health, physical health, cognition, psychological health, and social support have more consistently identified vulnerabilities among older adults at the time of AML diagnosis. However, the lack of standardization and expert consensus around this approach continue to limit clinical application and prognostic value in these older patients. In this paper, the authors report on the results of a single-institution prospective cohort study that aimed to investigate which patient-related characteristics of geriatric assessment predict treatment tolerance and outcomes in older adults with AML and how much they can improve survival prediction. The study enrolled 105 newly diagnosed adults with AML between November 2016 and December 2019. Patient age ranged from 60 to 75, with a median of 64 years, 
93% of patients had an ECOG performance score less than or equal to 2. All patients received intensive induction chemotherapy, consisting of a three-day course of idorubicin at 12 mg per meter squared and a seven-day course of cytarabine at 100 mg per meter squared. 58% of patients underwent allogeneic stem cell transplantation with matched donors after one or two cycles of consolidation. Geriatric assessment was performed at enrollment and included various evaluations for social and nutritional support, depression, distress, and physical function. A significant proportion of patients, between 32.4% and 69.5%, met the criteria for impairment in one or more domain of the geriatric assessment tool. An analysis of associations between geriatric assessments and patient outcomes revealed that physical impairment and cognitive dysfunction were significantly associated with non-fatal toxicities, including grade 3 to 4 infections, acute renal failure, and or hospitalization lasting 40 days or longer during induction chemotherapy. In addition, reduced physical function, evaluated by the short physical performance battery, and depressive symptoms, evaluated by the Korean version of the short form of geriatric depression scales, were significantly associated with inferior survival. In terms of individual performance components, gait speed or sit-and-stand speed proved to be the most powerful tools for predicting survival outcomes. The authors concluded that geriatric functional assessment improved risk stratification in therapeutic decision-making, and may prove useful in informing interventions aimed at improving the outcomes of older patients with AML. In an accompanying commentary, Heidi Kleppen from Wake Forest Health Sciences notes that the findings by Min and colleagues emphasize the value of objectively assessing physical and cognitive function and mood in predicting vulnerability to intensive therapy for AML. She further notes that the studied geriatric measures performed similarly in two different populations, Korean and American, supporting the global utility of these tools. However, Kleppen also cautions that the evaluated measures may not be sufficient for predicting variability of outcomes for older patients receiving less intensive therapies or those with worse performance status since the studied patients were limited to those with relatively good performance status. Despite these limitations, she is optimistic that these latest findings will aid in identifying reproducible tools to characterize fitness for intensive therapy that can be incorporated into clinical trials and used at the bedside to guide therapeutic decision-making. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.